0: How many of you really don't like it when people don't like you? All of us have a touch of it. I mean, some of of us more than others. Some of us, eh. Some of us it really gets to. There are some certain things that you surely do not want to do if you're worried about what people think of you. I'll give you a couple examples. One of them is run sound at church. (laughs) Inevitably, half the room loves you. And half the room is always on your case. It's too loud. It's too quiet. In fact, when I worked at the Heights Church, we, we ran out of options as to what to do, so we eventually put a thing of earplugs back there. When the too loud crowd came back, the sound guy would hand him a pack of earplugs. <laughs> you don't want to be a sound guy. You don't want to be a referee or an umpire. Anybody watching the tournament right now? Anybody watch the big uh, Notre Dame-Kentucky game last night? Oh, it was a great game. Inevitably, no matter which way that referee calls it, you got half the crowd explaining, yelling why he's wrong, right? There's another thing you don't want to do. If you, if you thrive and are concerned above all else about people liking you, you don't want to be a truth speaker. You don't want to be a truth speaker. I talked to George Wheeler this week on Friday. We met up at Fane Park and, and had lunch. And for those of you who don't know... Uh, George and Deb are a great couple. They've worked in the past with me mentoring marriages. Uh, they help in the children's ministry sometimes. George leads our prayer team every morning from 9.30 to 9.45 on Sunday, covering this place and the ministry in prayer. they grandparents, great-grandparents, and uh, great-parents of their own family, speakers of the truth of Jesus. But it wasn't always that way in George's life. George told me a story that he... He said I could pass on when I asked him. He said when he was younger, a young father, young husband, young kids at home, he had a passion in his life. And that passion was marijuana. George and Deb lived and still live out in the Dewey area. And he told me the story how he had built a a greenhouse. (laughs) And he dug three feet down and he said, man, I got that soil good. (laughs) He said, those plants were this tall. And he said, uh, you know, that was a big part of his life. It was a big part of what drove him. Well, there was a local legend. I don't know if any of you have heard of him named Chuck Olson. He's since passed away. Uh, He had been in several of the wars. He had joined as a soldier at 15 and a half years old. His parents had to sign him in. He wrote books that soldiers still use to this day as to how to survive in certain situations, and and he was around our area. George said there was one day where Chuck Olson came to their house. Chuck was a a sheriff at the time. (laughs) Looked out the door, Chuck had a plate of cookies. Chuck knocked on the door, and Deb got the door. Chuck handed Deb the, the cookies, and they said thank you, and then, Chuck said, hey, George, could you come out here for a minute? George came out, and they sat down on a bench, and Chuck started talking, and he he said Chuck was a man of few words. i like to get to the point, speak truth. He said, uh, yeah, the other day, uh, an aerial plane saw an acre of marijuana a couple miles away from here. I helped them burn it down. Just a word to the wise, George. And George said, that's all the man said. They shook hands and Chuck departed. And George said he, he, he sat there on that bench and thought about his life choices seriously. Thought about all the things he stood to lose. Uh, his family, his, his children. And he went out shortly thereafter and, and got rid of his marijuana. He he took the truth to heart. I thought about that and I thought it's easy to appreciate a guy like Chuck Olson from a distance. You know, he's a hero. That's cool. He he's brave. He says it like it is, but when he shows up at your doorstep, it's a different matter. Will you listen? Will you receive it? Or will you not? Truth speakers always get mixed reactions. Jesus was a truth speaker. He is a truth speaker. He wasn't an ear tickler. Okay, he wasn't the guy that would would be number one on the iTunes sermon podcast list. He spoke with grace, but he spoke with truth. And he often got those mixed reactions. We know that from Palm Sunday. We're going to look at Palm Sunday real briefly. And we're going to flash back to where we see it about a year earlier in his ministry. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. For all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. How many of you know that it was less than a week later? Luke 23, the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But the crowd kept shouting, crucify Him. Crucify Him. You talk about two starkly different reactions. And you say, how can we have such different reactions in the the same town? We read that it's a crowd of disciples that were joyfully saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. So it's possible that many of them were not in the crowd that also shouted, crucify Him. But it is possible that some of them were, because how many of you know that crowds are easily changed? Matthew 27.20 says, Part of how that crowd was won over, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. They're working their case in the crowd. Mark 15.11 says, The chief priests stirred up the crowd, we know it's easy to stir up a crowd, don't we? Just ask yourself, how many people believe hands up, don't shoot is what happened in Ferguson? The crowd was stirred up to believe a lie. Many of them, weren't they? Crowds can be won over. They can be fickle. Jesus found that in His ministry. He, he often got mixed reactions. Now I want to do a flashback. Okay? Many of the best shows have flashbacks, right? You go back earlier in the the story, and, and catch a glimpse of what was going on. I want to go about one year before Palm Sunday. Jesus was at the peak of his popularity. This is when he, was, he had, had massive crowds coming around him. Many people loved him. They wanted to hang with him. They had seen such powerful signs. He's, he's at the peak. I want you to read with me. We'll turn back to Luke chapter 9, if you have your Bibles. Verse 10, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. You remember they had just been sent out by Him. They came back. They had gone out two by two. It says, He took them with Him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed Him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away, so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place here. Did he say, Sounds like a good idea? You know what he said? He looked at the disciples and said, You give them something to eat. Now, put yourself in those disciples' shoes, all right? We know there's at least 5,000 men. All right, you add women and children, we could be talking about 10,000 people. There's 12 disciples, and Jesus has just looked at you and said, you feed them. <laughs> Their first reaction is what you and I would do, right? Let's, let's crunch some numbers, let's look around at the practicality and say, Jesus, we've got to send these people away. <laughs> That's in stark contrast with his compassion. He says, you give them something to eat. They answer, we have only five loaves of bread and and two fish. Alexander McLaren says, God brings us to impossible moments like that in our lives. Multiple times as his children. Things that look impossible to us. He says, commands are given and apparent duties are laid on us. In order that we may find out how powerless we are to do them. It can never be our duty to do what we cannot do, but it is often our duty to attempt tasks to which we are conspicuously inadequate in the confidence that He who gives them has laid them on us to drive us to Himself and there to find sufficiency. The best preparation of His servants for their work in the world is the discovery that their own stores are small. You ever found yourself in a situation like that? God makes it clear to you, here's what I want you to do in this situation. You say, Lord, this is impossible. That's right where He wants you because it drives you to Him. Say, I've got this. You can't do it, but I can. He said to His disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Imagine this, this crowd of 10,000 people divided into groups of 50. Just scattered out. The disciples did so, maybe wondering, what in the world? And everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. That word gave means that he continuously sat there and passed out the bread and the fish. And these weren't big Herring or codfish. The, the word for fish used here is like almost like anchovies. Little pickled fish that the people would commonly have with their bread. So he's continually giving this out to his disciples. And they distribute to the people. Love the conclusion of the story. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. 10,000 people. Not only did he feed them, not only did he create enough, there was more than enough. And I want to look for a moment at the big picture of what he was doing there, how he was ministering to the crowd, but also cooperating with his disciples. How many of you know that Jesus loves to cooperate with his followers to meet the needs of the world? Watch this. First, he pointed out the need to his disciples. John tells us that he looked at Philip and said, where are we to buy bread for all these? And, and Philip starts crunching the numbers. Eight months of wages will not feed all these people. <laughs> okay, Jesus, let's be real here. He's, Gene, you'd appreciate that, right? That, that. He, he knew the exact amount. Think of your wages. What are you making a month? Times it by eight. <laughs> Philip's like, Jesus, come on. But Jesus let them feel the weight of that need, didn't he? He could have just taken care of it himself without addressing the disciples, but he wanted them to feel the need in front of them. All right. Andrew, on the other hand, found a little boy with a lunch and brought it to Jesus. But even Andrew said, but what are these among so so many? What can we do with this little lunch? So he pointed out the need, and the disciples wrestled with the need. That's the first little set there. The second thing he did is he instructed the disciples. He said, prepare the people. And they went out there and said, you sit here, these 50, you sit here. And and again, you can imagine they're wondering, what what in the world, why am I doing this? But they obeyed. And they prepared the people. The third and and final pair here, Jesus provided. He looked to heaven, the source of bread, daily bread. Thank God and multiplied the bread and fish. He provided and the disciples Distributed. Alright, you see how Jesus works with his disciples in the crowd. Let me break it down again. He pointed out the need and they wrestled with it. He instructed and they obeyed. He provided and they distributed. We're going to come back to that at the end because that's how he works with you and I in the world today as well. But this miracle was not just about feeding people. Okay? We're going to take a detour from Luke and go to John. And look at a discussion that happens the day or two after this. The discussion begins outside, and it moves into a synagogue. But well, we want to see that Jesus was driving home spiritual truth through this physical miracle. So if you have your Bibles, turn over to John chapter 6 with me. That's where we'll spend the rest of our time. John 6, 14, and 15. It says, after the people saw the sign that Jesus performed, They began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Look at this. All right, you got 10,000 people, and they're looking at the bread man, right? (laughs) They're like, This is awesome. A guy like this, I mean, if he could just keep doing this, I wouldn't have to work so hard. You know, they're thinking back that Moses had predicted a prophet that would come. And they think back to Moses, and they're like, wait a second. Moses didn't only provide manna in the desert. He helped set us free from Egypt. Maybe this bread maker will help set us free from Rome, and and he'll be our king. I want to tell you something. If you doubt that people will make someone king for bread, I want to tell you about the average Sunday morning here. You know what the, the biggest, most common phone call I get while I'm wrapping up preparation Sunday morning I'll get a call that says, is somebody bringing the donuts? <laughs> I love the donuts too. I'm not, I'm not trying to make a real convicting point or anything, but people love their bread. and They love their donuts. All right. <laughs> but Jesus, he says he knew that they intended to come and make him king by force. What would you do at that moment? I mean, some of us would be like, Oh, yeah. It's on now. i got a whole, whole crowd of people right here they are going to follow me. Let, let's really play to this. Let's make some more bread. Let's make some more fish. It says he withdrew again to a mountain by himself. He didn't come to set up a political kingdom and overthrow Rome at that time, right? He came to be a savior. The disciples across the sea of galilee in a in a boat and jesus walks across the, the sea of galilee you remember that story you can read it up if you want to want to but the the crowds realize they're gone and, and they they want to chase him down so they walk around the lake it says when they found him on the other side of the lake they asked him rabbi teacher when did you get here Now you know why they're following him right you ever been to the the duck pond <laughs> Once you start feeding on one side, you still got that bag of bread. You walk around that, th- oh man, <laughs> there they are. They want more bread. I said, when did you get here? Now, this would be a great chance for him to say, Guess what, guys? I got to tell you something cool I did last night. You know how I got here? I, I walked across the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> if Jesus was all about popularity, that would have been a great, I mean, he could say, Disciples, did you, see, you saw me, right? Tell them about it. And oh man, they, they would have been in even more awe. But he didn't, he didn't want them to love him just because he was a miracle worker. He wanted to be a savior. So instead of taking that moment where he could have climbed the popularity ladder, Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the donuts and had your fill. I mean, loaves. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him God the Father has placed His seal of approval. What's he saying to him? He's like, you guys are only thinking about physical, earthly things. And obviously that was important to him. He fed them, but he's saying there's something a whole lot more important that you're missing. The eternal things. They start to listen, start to ask some questions. They say, then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Because he had just told them, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. They're like, okay. They hear the word work, and they're thinking, okay, surely there's something I can do to earn this eternal life. And that's, Well, much of our world still thinks today, isn't it? Maybe you're sitting in here, this room this morning, thinking, I've got to do this and this and this to to get right with God. What is it? What does that list look like? Jesus answers them. He says, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Period. Anybody adds anything to that, you take them to this verse. When somebody flat out asked Jesus, what can we do to do the works God requires? All He said. Believe in the one He has sent. He telling them there's nothing you can do on your own. Believe in me. You know, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. Isaiah 55 paints it poetically. This is so beautiful. It says, Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money. He's talking about spiritual reality, not physical money. Anybody feel spiritually bankrupt? you got nothing to offer? Come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and spend your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me, listen, that you may live. He's saying the work the Father requires its not work at all, it's to believe in me. He goes on to flesh this out. Jesus declared... I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. What's he getting at with this bread metaphor? It's a, it's a brilliant metaphor. All right, this week we, we went out to IHOP to, that we let Evan pick where he wanted to go for his birthday. He turned six this week and... A kid loves IHOP. And it works for us because they have free kids meals when you buy an adult meal. <laughs> so we go there, and, and me and Carolyn are working on a, a steak omelet. Now, Here's the beauty of the picture Jesus is painting. I'm sitting there at IHOP, and I've got this steak omelet. I know You used to hang out there back when you lived here, didn't you? Yeah, you were part of the IHOP crowd. Imagine that I'm sitting there, and I'm just looking at that steak omelet. And I'm like, man. That steak omelet looks really good. In fact, I even believed that if I ate that, it would taste good, and I, I would walk out of here nice and full. And I sat there for the whole time we, we were there, just looking at it, thinking those thoughts. <laughs> Where would that leave me? Hungry. Just as hungry as when I came in. Because what do I have to do? I have to receive that food into myself for it to do me any good. That's the brilliance of Jesus saying, I'm the bread of life. He's saying, it's not enough just to know things about me. It's not enough just to even know that, that I'm going to die to uh, forgive the sins of the world. It's not enough to know that up here. You have to receive me. You have to trust that for you, for that to make any spiritual difference in your life. Warren Wiersbe says, just as you take food and drink within your body and it becomes a part of you, So you must receive Jesus with your innermost being so that He can give you life. What a beautiful message to this crowd of people that asks the question. He goes on to teach some more truth about it. He says, all those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. There's something really powerful here. All right, He's already talked about the importance of us believing and receiving, right? That is crucial. Well, what's he say here? He says, all those the Father gives me will come to me. Now there's a world of debate going on in the church for, for centuries. Which is it? Does the Father choose and give people to Jesus? Or do they need to believe? Some would say, how do we reconcile this? And we spend years wrestling with that. Charles Spurgeon Somebody asked him, how do you reconcile these two truths that God draws and gives to Jesus and that we must believe? You know what Charles Spurgeon said? I never try to reconcile friends. These truths are not opposed to each other. They work together. God does give to Jesus, but we also must believe. The beauty of this statement in the second half is powerful. Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Any of you who have believed in Jesus ever wonder about that when you fail? I like what John MacArthur said about this. He said, listen, if you could lose your salvation, you would. I believe that. I believe that's why it's so important that it's God holding on to me. The power of grace. Jesus goes on, I'm the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven. He's talking about himself, which anyone may eat and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now what's he doing? He's looking back at manna, right? And you remember the story of manna. The Israelites are wandering around in the desert, They're hungry, they're complaining, and God says to Moses, hey, I'm going to put this special stuff, and manna means what is it? (laughs) That's what the word means, what is it? I'm going to put this, what is it, all over the ground. And you tell the people every morning, go out and look for it, and then they can eat. All right? And Deuteronomy says that the reason God did this was to humble the people that they would believe on his word, because man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. See, they could have heard that and said, I don't believe it, stayed in their tent, and they'd get hungry, right? They had to trust God, get up, go out there and gather this, what is it? But the thing about that manna Jesus is saying is, look, they ate it, and it kept them alive in the desert for their journey, but guess what? They all died. Now look at me, he's saying. I came down from heaven too. And some of you are probably looking at me and saying, What is it? Who are you? <laughs> They're saying, Look, I'm, I'm superior to that manna. Because if you eat me, you will never die spiritually. You will remain connected to my Father forever. I'm better than that manna. Then he gives an overt reference to his coming death. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, a lot of zombie shows are popular these days, right? A lot of, a lot of brain eating and body eating. That would not go down well with the Jews, okay? All that blood and, and flesh and stuff. Mm-mm. And now you got Jesus here, right? Jesus is saying, this bread is my flesh. And these religious Jews... <laughs> You just say that. They begin to argue sharply among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They think he's talking about, you gotta go cannibal. They're they're taking spiritual truth too literally. You'd think this would be a moment for, you know, if he was a popularity seeker for him to say, no, 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 no. (laughs) And then to explain it. He, he continues on. He says, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day. He continues to say the same thing. And he's talking about receiving himself through faith. Watch what happens. John 6, 60, on hearing it. Many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? doesn't just say many of the crowd. It says disciples, people who were following him. You see, some of the disciples in the crowd, I believe, were believers. Others were following him to decide whether they believed in him as the Messiah or not. Who can accept this hard teaching? John 6, 66 says this. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. At a moment where he could have become king, he continued to preach the truth and allowed folks to make their choice. Many turned back and no longer followed him. A.B. Bruce said, The sermon on the bread of life produced decisive effects. It converted popular enthusiasm for Jesus into disgust. Like a fan, it separated true from false disciples. And like a winnowing breeze, it blew the chaff away, leaving a small residuum of wheat behind. I read that and I think about those people that walked away. They walked back to their old life, their old religion, their old hopelessness. We know Jesus wasn't callous towards that because later he would weep over the city of Jerusalem because they would not receive him. And yet, here's the scary thing. He allowed them to make the choice. Freedom is a wonderful thing. It's also a humbling thing. If you're here this morning and you've been spoken to -to face-to-face of the bread of life, you have the same choice that crowd did. Will you receive? Will you eat it? Or will you walk away and go back to the old ways that never worked? I'd ask you this morning, have you received the bread of life in Jesus Christ? Have you trusted in His death on the cross that He spoke of here for your forgiveness? you trusted in His resurrection for the hope of power and new life that it brings for you? If there's anybody here that would like to talk about that, it's the most important decision you could ever make. I, I feel a, a sadness when I read this, John 6:66. 6, From this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. I would feel that same sadness if anyone in this room walked into eternity the same. Have you received the bread of life? If you have, I want to revisit how Jesus worked in the miracle and talk about how it applies to you and I today as his followers you, we talked about his 12 and how he worked with them to feed the 5,000 he cooperated with them remember first he he pointed out the need guess what he points out the need to you and I today you know what he says he says look out there the fields are white unto harvest there are people that, that need to hear the truth of Jesus Christ he, he lets us feel the need and Many of us in here wrestle with that need. Maybe at times we feel like the disciples. Who are we among so many? You ever feel that when you look at the world and the pain and the suffering? Who are we among so many? He points out the need. We wrestle with it. Number two, He instructs us. Our lives can prepare people. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven our instruction we obey maybe we wonder is this going to make a difference just like his disciples Jesus provides he said I am the living bread that came down from heaven whoever eats this bread will live forever this bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world and guess what he provides we distribute that good news and there is more than enough Jesus to go around he said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me therefore go and make disciples of all nations all nations Revelation 7 9 and 10 to the future date and says I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation every tribe every people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What I take from that is, wow, we're blown away that 10,000 people could eat some fish and bread. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue are going to partake of the bread of life. We're going to spend eternity with them. We get to be a part of it. He cooperates with his disciples. Matthew West wrote these powerful lyrics. He said, I woke up this morning, saw a world full of trouble now. Thought, how'd we ever get so far down? How's it ever going to turn around? So I turned my eyes to heaven. I thought, God, why don't you do something? Well, I just couldn't bear the thought of people living in poverty, children sold into slavery. The thought disgusted me, so I shook my fist at heaven, said, God, why don't you do something? He said, I did. I created you. Thomas Constable says it this way, when believers become partners with Jesus in the execution of the mission, He can enable them to provide greater blessing for others than they can by themselves. One more from Alexander McLaren. There is no surer way to receive the full sweetness of and blessing of the gospel than to carry it to some hungry soul. These full baskets teach us that in Christ's gift of Himself as the bread of life, there is ever more than at any given moment we can appropriate. The Christian's spiritual experiences have an element of infinity in them. Father, I thank You that Jesus was not Interested in the popularity among the crowds. I thank You that He cared enough about those crowds. He cares enough about us to speak the life-giving truth that He is the bread of life. Father, I thank You for that bread of life that I have received in Jesus Christ. And I'm sure everyone in this room that has made that step of faith put their trust in You would say that with me. I pray that if there are any in this room that have not made that choice, that you would draw them, just as you said in this passage, the Father, Father, that you would give them to Jesus and that this morning they would believe. I pray for that. I pray for more people to find hope and meaning and satisfaction in Jesus. I pray for all of us who have been walking with Jesus for some time that we, like the 12 disciples in this story, would partner with you, Jesus, that we wouldn't move so fast that we ignore the the need that you presented to us. Help us to feel the weight of the need. Lord, help us to to prepare. We pray that you would provide, as you already have, the, the bread of life and help us to distribute it. Give us those opportunities. At work this week. Father, I just pray that, like George, whatever truth we've been hit with this morning from the truth speaker, Jesus Christ, you would help us to receive it, to turn our lives around. I know that moment in George's life was the beginning of a process by which he eventually came to trust in Jesus because he listened to the hard truth. He was set free, changed the course of his family generations.